Over this past week, the effects of the coronavirus has impacted more and more aspects of our daily lives. I've been thinking about one of the great works of philosophy, possibly the greatest work of philosophy in the 20th century by one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, Albert Camus. You know, for years, I taught about Camus in the classroom when I would give lessons on existentialism. And one book from Camus stood out to me, and I've been thinking a lot more about it over this past week and the parallels to our experiences of life right now. This masterpiece, written by Camus in 1947, is called The Plague. I want to explore this book together, not just because of the obvious connections and implications that it has for our current pandemic, but because of the larger, perhaps more substantial pandemic that will linger long after this coronavirus is, has subsided. The pandemic of our crisis of meaning. The plague is set in the French Algerian city of Oran. Oran is actually a real city, though the events of this book are fictitious. They are loosely informed by a series of health epidemics that did strike this city over the centuries. In particular, there was a significant cholera epidemic that killed many people of the indigenous population when the French came and colonized Algeria and colonized the city of Oran in 1849. For those of you unfamiliar with this book, I'm going to lay out a basic plot synopsis here. And if that's something you don't want to have spoiled for you, maybe you want to pick up and read the book and come back to this podcast at another time, I I'd certainly would encourage that. But maybe even if you plan on doing that, going through this basic plot summary might be helpful. And then after that, we're going to talk about some of the characters in this book and what they represent, because each, each of these characters uh, characters in this story represent different philosophical approaches to the problem of meaning and the meaning crisis, and the crisis of meaning that you have to imagine was taking place in the 1940s after two global wars and the horrors of war that so much of the world had been subjected to. The beginning of the book starts by giving us an introduction to the city of Oran, and in this city we see Suddenly, the emergence of rats, thousands of rats, rats that, for some reason, the population of the city doesn't initially notice. It's something that they ignore. But not long after the emergence of the rats, local newspapers, and maybe this sounds maybe almost similar to uh, season three of, of Stranger Things, right? Not long after the rats emerge, some local newspapers start reporting on the incidents, right? And then before you know it, there is the beginning of some signs and symptoms that perhaps these rats have been carrying something that is dangerous. We get introdu introduced in part one to the main character, Dr. Ryu. That's R-I-E-U-X. And these are French names. Dr. Ryu is a doctor. He has a, you know, a fairly affluent life. He's got a, a comfy apartment. But the building's concierge, 
Michelle, M. Michelle, dies from a strange fever. And as Dr. Ryu begins to investigate and, and to, to dive into the conditions and the symptoms that killed off M. Mr. M. Mr. Michelle, he comes to a startling conclusion. This illness came from the rats, and it's not just affecting the concierge, his friend in the building. This illness is, is cropping up all over town. And it's becoming a, a pandemic. It's a, an issue that the, the town authorities are aware of, but they don't want to, uh, they don't want to jump to too, too quick of a conclusion, right? They don't want to move too quickly. They don't want to create more chaos and confusion over just one person's death. But more and more deaths happen, and it becomes clear that this is an undeniable epidemic. Even though the obvious facts that everyone can see right in the streets and with their own family members is showing that this is an epidemic, the authorities in the city of Oran are not quite taking it seriously enough. At least that's what you deduce as you're reading this. You know, they, they, they will talk about enacting, um, you know, the proper steps, right? But their language, the, the way that they always talk about it is overly optimistic. And, and it, it doesn't seem to take seriously the, the pandemic nature of this plague that's spreading. A special ward is opened up in the hospital, but within only a matter of days, the extra 80 beds are filled, the death tolls begin to rise, more desperate measures are taken, homes are quarantined. It's, it's quite the scene. It's the scene we're looking to avoid in our own coronavirus epidemic. Eventually, uh, you could say an, an antidote, a vaccine of sorts arrives in the city, but there's only enough of it to treat those who already have it. There's not enough in reserve to meet the needs of all the people, and the deaths keep growing and growing. Eventually, at the end of part one, Oran is closed off from the rest of the world. It becomes a closed system, and this is really, really important for some of the philosophical implications. It's a closed system. There will be no outside influence, no escaping from it. This is the closed universe that all the inhabitants of Oran now find themselves within. So that's the first part of the story. As you move into part two, the second part of the story, the, the town is, as it is now, quarantined off from the rest of the world. There's no travel, no way in and out. You can't even send mail out of the city. You shouldn't even use the telephone except for emergencies, things dictated as emergencies. People are experiencing a total and complete separation from the outside world. This is these are the sorts of scenes that, as I, you know, we've been thinking about what the future of this pandemic and in the world look like. Some of these scenes have been have been coming to mind, and I'm hopeful that we can avoid them. But we're already seeing some of these in in places like China and Italy and. 
even more so here in the United States. It's a it's a thing where we're, we're trying to avoid the outcomes of this novel, and this is part of what makes reading this novel so so haunting right now. But I think it's important. It's important that we go through because there's important things for us to think about. The ramifications of this this is going to last long, long beyond the the final cessation, the ending of this epidemic when we move back to some sort of state of of normalcy. So in the second part, we're, we're almost like right now, we're, we're kind of a bit in part two of the book in our own current events right now, as I'm recording this on, you know, March, March 16th, 2020. It's in this isolation, in this state of isolation and quarantine that we begin to see the character of the various characters in our story emerge, and each one of them are a thought experiment about how we respond, in particular, how we respond ultimately to the nihilistic vision of the world that the naturalist frame presents us. This is the clear and this is the clear implication of Camus' work coming out of World War II, and it's not just. Some people have looked at this book, and maybe if you read some stuff online about it, you know, people think it's a parable about, you know, the the, the impact of Nazism, and I, I just don't think that's the case. As the more you read this, and the more you understand Camus, the more you see this is about a much larger philosophical school of thought, one that Camus denied. He didn't enjoy being called this, but. Uh, an existentialist perspective and a, an existentialist um, inclination to somehow find a way to move beyond the nihilism of our age. So getting back to the synopsis of the story, sorry, you know, it's just so, get so excited to talk about the implications of it. Let's get back to the synopsis here. So in part two, the, the city is sealed off. You begin to really see how people respond to the isolation, respond to the awareness that they're in this sort of closed, random universe. Uh, who gets the plague and who doesn't seems arbitrary. There, it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be any, any sense in which you can draw a straight line. Obviously, there's people that have had contact with the rats and, then, and those who have had contact with the rats and, you know, then have contact with other people. That's how the virus spreads. But some people get them. Some people get the plague that you think, oh, that's a good person. Why did they get it? And while other people, like common, like a criminal, a, a character in her story, who plays the the role of a, a criminal who constantly is seeking to um, to to take advantage of the situation for his own good? He doesn't get it, and you're going. This seems so random. Where's the coherence in this? We talked about that in a previous episode on the Book of Ecclesiastes. That our search for coherence for for a repeatable pattern and structure to the the fabric of existence is a central feature of our human experience to look for meaning in the universe. And the plague is, is striking, first of all, at people's sense of coherence. It doesn't make sense that, the, that there are people here who are suffering from this that are good people, while there are others that aren't getting this at all. They seem unaffected, right? 
some of our characters, one other character in this story, a character named Raymond in part two, tries to tries to figure out some sort of plan to escape the city. He wants to wants to get out of Iran and he he becomes friends with some criminals to try to smother, you know, try to get him out of the city and smuggle him out. He's certainly one approach to coming face to face with the absurdity of the closed universe. There's another character, Father Panelo. Father Panelo is a well well respected um, he's a well-respected priest in the city. He's a Jesuit priest, and you know he's he's known for his his zeal and his his convictions about Christian theology and his convictions about the judgment of God on sinners. And you know uh, when the plague first breaks out, Panelu's theology doesn't seem to be affected at all, and he preaches this sermon and he insists that you know the this plague is the judgment of god and boy certainly we hear responses like that to natural evils like these in the world and as he as he lays out what what has been his theology the more and more that he experiences of this the more and more his theology begins to change Yes, God is judging. It's a judgment on those who have hardened their hearts, those that have rejected him. But Panelu is also wrestling with the, the theology of what we might steal a phrase from Jürgen Moltmann, the, the theology of the crucified God. He's wrestling with how God is, how is God present? How, if God is judging us, how is he also present and supposed to be our hope? When Panelu sits bedside uh, for a plague, plague-stricken young man and prays, prays, prays fervently for the boy to be spared. The boy dies. And this drastically, I mean, this has a significant impact on Father Panelu. He doesn't give up his faith doesn't give up his faith, but instead instead moves to a, a sort of, we could say maybe a, a bit of a theological agnosticism about the problem of evil. Seeing this, coming face to face with this, he, he can't reconcile. He doesn't know how an all-powerful, all-loving God could let something like this happen. But it, even in the face of that, Panelu moves to be moves himself into a position to be someone that continues to help people amidst the suffering of the world maybe it's a test of faith right maybe god this is part of god's will right and and not long after panelu's experience he comes down with the plague but instead of calling calling for a doctor. Panelu suggests that uh, to himself that, you know what, perhaps this is God's will too, and gives up his fight, Doesn't never goes in, never calls the doctor, and dies from the plague. Well, what at least on the surface you might think is the plague, Dr. Ryu examines his symptoms and his symptoms are actually not similar, 
similar enough to the plague, Ryu actually comes to the conclusion that that Dr. Panalu Panalu has died from something else. Wow. What an absurd, absurd universe, right? This is this is a key, an essential ingredient to this this story. Part three, right? The situation. Things get worse. People are trying to escape, but they, even as people try to escape, there are armed guards in the city that prevent the escape from happening. People are killed and shot, and and there's looting in the streets and chaos and anarchy beginning to spread. And then there's a declaration of martial law and a curfew. Heaven forbid that we ever get to any point like that. I don't, I don't believe we will. But it's still a helpful thing for us to think of for how how the how we respond to situations like this can create more or less suffering in the world. And so this is uh, things are worsening. There doesn't seem to be any sign of improvement. People are moving from any sense of desperation and trying to escape to a sort of apathetic acceptance of the situation. Many people just allow themselves to waste away. In part four, whoever remains is, we're in the months of September and October, still months into this terrible pandemic. The plague worsens still. Ryu's own wife, Dr. Ryu, the, the character who is giving his life and, and treating all of these people who have come down with the plague. His wife, who's been in a, a separate hospital, a sanitarium is what they, they called it. And it, she didn't have the plague. She had something else. And her, her condition is getting worse. And, and he's coming face to face with, you know, am I doing any good at all? Am I doing anything to help? This despair is even taking hold of him. It's in this fourth act of the story that Panalu has that experience bedside of watching, watching the young boy die of the plague along with Dr. Yu and uh, another character who we'll talk more about, Jean Terreau. And it's in this act, right, that, that Panalu himself dies. Things do not seem to be improving. There are these isolation camps all over the city, these camps for people to be quarantined. And uh, one character, a character named Othan, he, he's in one of these isolation camps. It was actually Othan's son who had died of the plague. and. Othan is actually in part four, this pretty significant scene. He is, he's actually allowed his period, his quarantine period has come up and he's, he's able to leave the camp, but instead he ends up staying and volunteering. And he does this as a way to, to, to cope with and to somehow fight against the absurdity of the death and tragic loss of his son. He stays in the camp and volunteers and to, to be someone that's there to care for the sick and the dying. 
in part five, the, the fifth act of the book, the plague starts to subside in Oran. It's January. There's celebrations. The, the town is excited to open its gates once again. But Othan, the man who lost his son to the plague and had an opportunity to escape one of the quarantine camps when his time came up, that same man who decided he was going to go back into the camp and volunteer, even as people are celebrating celebrating the end of the plague, Othan himself dies. Another character who we'll talk a little bit more about, Cotard, he, he's, the, he's the guy that has, um, he's the, the criminal that's sort of pr profited throughout the story and making the most of the situation. He's Camus' sinner in this sort of godless tale. Authorities confront him about his, his, his malevolent behavior in the midst of this horrific tragedy, and he escapes. He gets away. He's never arrested. Jean Thoreau, another hero in the story, even as many people are getting the all-clear sign that they are free and that the, the town will eventually open back up, Thoreau, Jean Thoreau, gets the plague and dies. Ryu, and the, towards the end of the story, finds out Dr. Ryu, the, the hero of this, of this story, the, the character, that the doctor that has given his life in this seemingly meaningless situation, in this random, chaotic, closed universe, finds out via a telegram that his own wife has died. It's... <laughs> It's a horrific story. I guess if any silver lining is there and by the end of the story, the town gates open and people come back and, and their, their loved ones that were outside of the city, they get reunited. Um, Cotard goes nuts. The guy that was the criminal and making the most out of his malevolent behavior in the midst of the city, he goes nuts, shoots at people from his home, eventually does get arrested. And then we're left with this conclusion from the narrator, narrator concluding that there is, even in a sort of world in which we struggle to find meaning, that there are some examples of the existence of the good, even in an absurd universe. Now that you have a basic understanding of the story, and again, of course, I encourage you to read it and pick it up. It's a, diff it's, it's a hard read, but it's a worthwhile read. As you understand the story, we want to go through now and talk about some of the symbolism, talk about the characters and what they represent, and some of the philosophical and theological implications of this story. In order to understand that, we need to understand a bit of the, the philosophical movements that's been happening in the Western world that lead up to this time in which Camus is writing this book in the, the mid to late 40s. This, this was published in 1947. To go back a bit, of course, you know, and some of this stuff we're actually going to overlap and hopefully have, I'd love to at some point eventually cover in the Problem of Evil series. But if we go back, well, there was a significant shift emerging in Western thought that, that takes place really at the beginning of the Enlightenment. And from the Enlightenment, we had a period of theological shift that we could call deism. 
the Enlightenment, uh, as a result of the scientific revolution, God's activity in the world was more and more reduced. Certainly in, in the ancient worldview, the gods or the domain of the gods were the domain of the invisible, um, we could say the invisible causalities behind things that we didn't fully understand, right? That's why in many, many ancient civilizations you had a, a, in the realm of the gods, this, this um, you know, divine meta realm to steal a line that I've heard Paul Vanderclay use before. In this sort of divine meta realm, you have gods that would oversee things like the rivers and the trees and the weather, right? Because these are these are things and behaviors that you don't always understand the coherence of them. And so we, we project that there must be in the same way that we act in the world and have ways in which our actions create different effects in the world, that there was this sort of invisible domain, this domain in which the gods acted in the world in ways that influenced things like weather or maybe even things like a plague. And certainly, even as we move outside of polytheism into monotheism, this has certainly been one perspective, right? That all of all the events in the world are events that have been dictated by, by God. But as we got into the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, more and more of that idea that there was you know, God controlling the weather, the movements of the planets, et cetera, et cetera, by, uh, by control, I mean, as a secondary cause, not just as the primary cause, but as the secondary cause, that became less and less fashionable, right? We had a way of explaining things. We had, we had the laws of physics that emerged from Newtonian physics. And of course, those went, un- underwent some significant, significant tweaks in the era of Einstein. And of course, as even Einstein Einstein, Einsteinian science has undergone um, some uh, changes and challenges in the emergence of quantum theory. But in the emergence initially of Newtonian physics, you didn't, you didn't have as much need for what you once thought was God's activity in the world. At least many people didn't. And so this pushed the the role and function of God in day-to-day life more and more out into the margins until you got to a point that was really, really popular in the 18th century in the emergence of deism. And deism was a school of thought that seemed like a logical conclusion, right? That a omnipotent, all-powerful God wouldn't need to actually act in his creation at all. Because if he was omnipotent, if he was all-knowing, if he was all-powerful and all-good, he could just simply create the machinery of the universe we see these laws that are happening. We don't need to say that God, his hand is actively, you know, um, making the apple fall out of the apple tree and land on Newton's head. There could be a force that describes that, a law, a law that has been set up by God, but doesn't need God's maintenance and intervention. And if God intervened in it, well, wouldn't that almost be a deficiency? So deism proposed the sort of clockmaker God, a uh, uh, you know, God as ultimate reality, who set up external reality, who set up the contingent reality to function in a way in which he could set the clock, as it were, and let the clock run. This is the clockmaker God. Well, eventually, as we get to the, the, the era of Darwin, right, and the 
the Darwinian revolution and we see the world not as a place in balance and these ecosystems that are in balance, but through the Darwinian language of struggle and survival and violence, it, it created this sort of challenge to, well, where is God in the midst of that? And, and perhaps this is just is this really the way that God designed the world to work and function? Is this really the clockmaker God? And more and more ex- people experienced and came face to face with the problem of evil and suffering in the world, the more and more they didn't see even a need for this deist God, this clockmaker God. And so God moved even further from the margins to out of the picture entirely. The universe was its own causation. We need not invoke a deity of any kind. And the rise of naturalism grew in its popularity in the 19th and into the 20th century. And only you know, the experience of two world wars made this sort of uh, naturalism popular in the mainstream. As we talked about before, some of the logical implications of naturalism, that this is a closed universe, that the universe is nothing more than mindless matter, these these sorts of answers to our deep questions can create a deep sense of despair and nihilism. What is the point if this is a random accident, a chaotic accident with no goal, no telos? And as a result, no objective standard morality. And even as a result, no way of saying things are true or false. And I'm flying over these things because we've talked about them before in previous episodes. I bring them all up to help you get to the point of understanding the setting of this book because it's still a very, this is still a very important mindset and a philosophical lens by which many people are reading and seeing the world. And this is really at the core and what the, at part of the core, at least, of our current existential crisis, our crisis of meaning in the Western world. So as we emerge from two world wars, people come face to face with the horrific suffering. Where is God in the Holocaust, right? These are what theologians are wrestling with. Theologians like Bart and, and Moltmann and and uh, and how do we respond to it in the world? That's what you know. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrestled with in many ways after World War One and after World War Two. The feelings of nihilism went mainstream as a response to those feelings of nihilism, which had been circling in academia for quite some time. We go back to the 19th century and the rise of Nietzsche. Nietzsche is exploring the ideas and what's going to happen to the world when the news of God's death, when God actually dies in the minds of people, when God and the Christian story is removed from the sort of cultural meta-narrative What's going to happen? And there are philosophers like Camus, like Jean-Paul Sartre, who are wrestling with this. We give them the title existentialist philosophers. And while Camus hated it and despised that title, denied it, he even denied that this work is a work of existentialism. Um, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, once we understand what existentialism is, it's hard to deny that this is a work of that. That just seems to emerge from Camus' outlook on life. So what is existentialism? Existentialism takes two forms. Of course, 
we have this sort of what we could call atheistic existentialism, and that's one form of it. We also have a Christian form of existentialism that's actually older and can go back to Kierkegaard. I don't have time to talk about that today, but in essence, existentialism is the search for significance in the face of a world that seems absurd and without meaning and purpose. For atheists, for those that have, were sort of accepting the, the, uh, what they might say are the objective truths, and we'll distinguish between these in a moment, the objective truths, quote-unquote, of materialism, they felt like, well, if we accept these as the objective truth of the state of reality, how in the world are we supposed to find as individuals meaning and purpose? So the philosophers like Sartre and Camus emerge who, who are proposing ways of transcending the nihilistic impulse. So central to existentialist philosophy is the is is the affirmation or I should say the defense of reality appearing to us in two forms. We have the objective form of reality which we could call the sort of the reality of the machinery of the universe. It's the reality of the math of the universe and the laws of physics. But there's also for the existentialists the subjective, and the subjective is the reality of the mind. It's the reality of consciousness. Subjectivity is the self's apprehension of the non-self. It's the internal world. It's to steal from another great parable of Camus. It's the internal world of Sisyphus. We've talked about the myth of Sisyphus before. It's the internal world of Sisyphus who was doomed to push that boulder by the gods up the mountain, a, a meaningless task for all of his life, only to have the boulder roll back down on him every time he got to the top of the mountain. But for Camus, it's the subjective world that Sisyphus has control over. It's in the in subjectivity that he can create meaning even in the objectively meaningless world. For Camus, the ultimate question of philosophy is whether or not one should commit suicide. And the plague brings this sort of question on into full display. Can value, can meaning, can significance be found in the objective truths of the universe? For Camus, they cannot. The objective truths of the universe, at least within this naturalist frame, point us to a mindless, chaotic, random, ethicless universe. How can someone find meaning and purpose in that? And in the face of that, again for Camus, the question is, should one commit suicide or not? Should one end their life or not? Can there be any sense of value, meaning, or significance, any sense of goodness found in the subjective? Can I, in my inner world, somehow find meaning, create my own sense of meaning and purpose even in this absurd universe. One of the great questions that we see Camus exploring as we go and we read through the story of the plague is the question of whether or not that in a godless absurd universe, whether or not there are categories of good and evil, whether or not there are good people and bad people in that world. And this is, this is Camus' attempt to try to 
find it, to write a story in which you as the reader would come away going, no, this person is clearly a saint. This person is a sinner. Even though Camus has not accepting of a sort of meta-narrative of a Christian or a theistic meta-narrative that that would have categories of sinners and saints, right? Let's think about some of the symbolism here as you've gone through and you've listened to the synopsis. What, what is some of the symbolism of the story? Okay, so the plague, it breaks out in the city of Oran. It's the city in North Africa. The disease starts to spread and the city closes its gates. This is an important symbol because the closing of the gates, the quarantining off of the city, is a symbol of the closed universe, a central feature of this, this sort of the naturalist and materialist framework. It seems to be the world of the, the, the materialist world points us to a world that is closed. It's closed to the outside. All that exists is this. And yes, sure, you know, maybe in a more modern frame, people might point to not just the universe, but a multiverse. But it, the, the principle is still the same. It's a series of causes and effects that have no intentionality, no purpose to them. It's a closed universe. There's no intervention. There is no transcendence in this universe. There is no help from the outside, if it were. And that's, these are not, that's not a really a true and helpful description of talking about God's relationship to the cosmos because he's both transcendent and imminent. But the denial of transcendence, the denial of the transcendent is the closing of the gates of the city of Oran. The disease as it spreads, the plague as it spreads, is symbolic of the absurdity of the universe. And we talk about absurdity. Absurdity is a, a word that's used throughout absurdist, existentialist, nihilist philosophy. The absurd is the sense in which we can't find coherence as we look at the universe, right? Even going back to Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes has a bit of absurdist in him at times. He looks and he goes, meaningless. Or we could also, if we wanted to put it into a different paraphrase, absurd, absurd. All of this is absurd, right? Why does the rich, why does the, the righteous man die in poverty while the, the wicked can get away and enjoy all these sorts of pleasures in life? Why doesn't it make sense? Why isn't it coherent? The absurdity of the universe is the experience in which we look for coherence and we find that the math doesn't make sense. Two plus two equals four on Monday and two plus two equals squirrel on Tuesday. It's like we can't make sense of it. And the, the arbitrary and absurd nature of the universe is symbolized by the plague in which the plague strikes some really good righteous people, right? People you look at in the story. And you go, that's a good guy. He's trying to do the right thing. While others, like Cotard, the, 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 the swindler, is, is selfishly and trying to make the most out of it for himself. And yet he doesn't come down to the plague. You can't, you can't predict who's going to get it, who's not going to get it. right? We feel the sense, even in our own situation, which is by no means like, to the extremes of the plague. That was a far worse disease than what we're experiencing. But, you know, the, the seriousness right now of what we're experiencing with the coronavirus, it, it, one of the things that we might feel as we look around is that we can't, 
it's difficult for us to find a coherent pattern. And people are really like, you know, the, the brilliant officials for the World Health Organization and the CDC are, are trying to figure out, well, how does this thing spread? And they're coming up with recommendations, you know, and what's the difference between, you know, having a gathering of 50 people versus a gathering of 51 people? Could you have a gathering of 50 people and it'd be okay, but a gathering of 51, suddenly, you know, you're going to you're gonna all of a sudden cause this this furthering of the pandemic, it's become, become worse and worse. You know, they're, they're doing their, their best job, but we, we do feel perhaps a similar feeling to the characters in this story. It seems unpredictable. Who's going to get it? Who's not going to get it? Good people get it. Bad people get it. I don't know if, what kind of person Tom Hanks is, but when I came home last week and my wife was watching the news and and uh, on the headlines, it said, Tom Hanks has the coronavirus. I go, Tom Hanks has the coronavirus? Isn't there like some dictator out there who could get this thing instead, right? Where's the coherence in this? And again, I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of person Tom Hanks is. He seems like a nice guy. But we see this symbolized in the story, the absurdity of the universe. The plague is arbitrary. It's random. It's chaotic. You can't figure it out. The, the effects are painful, not just physically, but the mental effects. And I think that's the thing right now. That's the thing right now about what's going on for many people is the psychological impact of being quarantined and practicing social distancing and, and the, the psychological effects for people as they wrestle with where's God in the midst of this? And God, like, can't he stop these things before they happen? And the theological issues that this will bring up for many people who have this, this, this view of God's interactions with the world that's being, being challenged in the midst of this. So it's not just the physical toll and the death, but long after this, guys, we're going to, this is really difficult. People are, are coming face to face with the impacts of this pandemic we're experiencing, the impacts of these self-quarantining measures and the social distancing on their workplaces and their jobs and their kids' schools, and the anxiety, the effects will last long after we get a sort of all clear and the gates are open sign again. But there is a possible blessing in disguise in the midst of this, and this is part of the important implications of Camus' story. Coming face to face with the absurd. See, this is even central in Kierkegaard's philosophy and theology, which we can't fully unpack today. But Kierkegaard, you know, writing in the, the 19th century in the 1800s, wasn't, wasn't necessarily facing the same sort of meaning crisis. He was facing sort of a, the malaise of of a what he thought was a sort of Christless Christianity and an inauthentic existence that many people were living into, coming face to face with the absurd for existentialist philosophers is the first step towards transcending the absurdity that you're living in. It's the first step. It's the it's Sisyphus coming to the top of the mountain for whatever the upteenth time is, and having the boulder roll back down and coming face to face with the reality that. This just might be it. <laughs> this this life I might have just might not 
make sense. In this way, the plague can be symbolically a blessing. Not that it is in and of itself, but everyone in Oran in this story, they, they're forced to, to come face to face. You can't, well, well, in the beginning of the story, there are some authorities that are trying to deny the impacts. By the time we get to the second and third act, the impacts of the plague are undeniable. They have to come, everybody comes face to face with the absurd. And it's at that point, it's at that point, the various ways that they respond to the absurd reveal something about them. Let's talk about some of these characters and, and their response to the absurd and how they deal and come face to face with despair or they try to avoid the pits of despair. <laughs> but how they come face to face with the absurd and how they respond to it reveal a lot to us about the different approaches humans have to coming face to face with their, their own senses of nihilistic despair. The first character is our, our main character here, Dr. Ryu. Dr. Ryu is, is Camus' saint in this sort of godless world, right? From the very get-go, even though his wife is sick and is off in some other sanitarium, he, he gives himself fully with all of his might. He's going to fight this plague to the very death. He, even though it might seem like there's nothing he can do in and of himself to stop this thing— He's going to keep revolting against it. To revolt against the absurd is the first step to the authentic life for existentialist philosophers like Camus, like Sartre, and even in a sense like Kierkegaard, but it's, it's different for Kierkegaard. Slightly different, right? You have to come face to face with this and you have to revolt against the absurd. This is like this is like, again, we can go back to even the video I did on the Dark Knight, the philosophy and theology in the Dark Knight in um, the Christopher Nolan Batman series. Batman, in, in a similar sense, is like Dr. Ryu. Gotham City is like Oran. It is the plague. It's the closed city. It seems like, why does anybody actually live here? Can things ever get better? The corruption seems too deep, and yet he keeps revolting against that absurdity. Or Dr. Yu is like, he's like the Batman figure in this story, right? The further he goes, the more and more he allows himself and allows his life to be touched and impacted and emotionally impacted by the lives and the, the brutal deaths of the people that he is serving. Ryu comes to this sort of conclusion, this conclusion about, about God and his role in the world. Uh, he, he sees all that's happening, all the despair, and he just can't come to grips with the fact that he, he just couldn't, can't swallow that somehow God, a good God, is running the show. He couldn't, he just couldn't allow himself to do that. Instead, Ryu takes the approach of his calling in life is to, quote, fight against creation as he found it. Quote, since the order of the world is shaped by death, mightn't it be better for God if we refuse to believe in him? and struggle with all our might against death without raising our eyes towards the heaven where he sits. Silence. 
this is a this is powerful powerful insight into our own psychology our own experience of pain and suffering and evil even for those of us who are christians and who who have a belief in in, in god it seems at times that we have to acknowledge that our, our most heartfelt prayers feel like they fall on deaf ears ryu gives dr ryu gives voice to that experience but this for camus is camus attempt to go all right how in the world can is it possible to have saints in a godless world and his attempt in this story is to create a character that is a saint in a godless world does it work is he effective well we'll come back to that and we'll explore that at the end i want to take a look at some of the other characters as well that offer us really interesting insights into the story we talked about the concierge in dr yu's apartment who who died of the plague at, at, at first, the, the way uh, when the rats come out and they, they start, you know, dying in the apartment building, he, he denies that the rats even exist. He doesn't want to come face to face with it. He's the, he's the man that refuses to acknowledge the absurdity of the closed universe. He's the one that doesn't want to come face to face to deal with his despair. He's certainly one approach people have. Eventually, uh, Michel does eventually admit what's going on. And when he does that, he himself dies of the plague. It's a symbolic picture of the person that just can't, can't come face to face with the absurdity. They feel as if if they come face to face with the absurd, if they acknowledge, they acknowledge that the routines and patterns of their life that they acknowledge the things they believe about the world that have given them a sense of meaning and purpose might not actually be filled with meaning and purpose. They can't come face to face with that and they choose to die. He represents those who we might say, again, in existentialist language, are living inauthentic lives because they haven't come face to face, acknowledged the absurdity of the world and tried to transcend it. There's another uh, character, an interesting character too, explore a character that we could simply call the the old spaniard he's not given a name in the story the old spaniard um you know isn't really that old <laughs> that old i suppose you know by our standards today I, we know that he's over the age of of 50 that's when he retired and the old the old spaniard uh has taken a very different approach to the plague he's decided that He's just never going to leave his bed. He's never going to leave his room. He's just going to sit there. He's going to count his peas, moving peas from one pan to the other. And enjoy. Enjoy the fact that these, these rats are killing all these people, right? <laughs> this is life. For the old Spaniard, he is the ultimate nihilist. Nothing in the world, whether we're talking about the objective world or the subjective world, has value. So his life, he lives with a complete absence of meaning, acknowledging that it doesn't have meaning, and just laying in his bed all day. It's, it's an 
it's just a, a picture that's difficult for us as we read the story. Of course, our gut impulse is to look at this character and go, "What well, you're doing? You're wasting." You're wasting your life. But again, that presupposes a structure of value in which we can say lives can be wasted, that there's a good life and not a good life. In the closed universe, the nihilistic universe of naturalism, how can one say that? How can one say there is a good life or a less good life? And Camus makes us, in just using this character, he makes us come face to face with that. Is this guy wrong? Is this old Spaniard wrong? Is the way that he lives a wrong way to live? There is, after all, no point. How is his life and any worse life lived than, than any other person? The next character is the character we uh, referred to as Cotard. He is a criminal. He's the criminal that we talked about already in the synopsis of the story, right? When the plague gets into its worst phases and into act, starting act two and in three and act four, the fourth part of the story. He, well, all these people, all these people, you got people like Dr. Yu who are giving themselves, another character like Jean Terreau, who is also a, a, a character we should deserve some attention. We'll talk about him in a moment. But Cotard takes a very different approach. Wow, all these people are going to be busy dealing with the plague. You've got government officials and police officers and public servants doing all this. Well, I this is a perfect opportunity for me to exploit the weakness in the system. As things get worse, I'm going to get richer. I'm going to become uh, even, he even gets throughout the book more excited as things get worse, right? He is uh, the sinner in the godless world. As you look at uh, Cotard's life and the way he derives happiness and a sense of pleasure, he is the, he is the hedonist, but a malevolent he hedonist that's deriving his pleasure out of people's misery. If one looks at Cotard's behavior and says, this is a bad character, this is a bad guy, they have to have some sort of structure of value. They have to have a, some sort of theological and philosophical framework for establishing ethics. And in this closed universe, in this absurd universe, in the universe Camus is trying to explore, the philosophical universe that he's trying to explore, he wants to hold on to the fact that there are sinners and saints. And he tells the story in a way that, that emotively responds. You respond as you're reading, you go, man, this Cotard guy, what a jerk, right? <laughs> what a sinner, what a bad guy. And yet you, it forces you to step back and go, well, what is it that we would say makes him bad? If all of the universe is like Oran, if it's entirely closed, if it's random, if it's chaotic, if, if one day we're going to die and it might be by some vicious means, even if we do something just and act rightly in the world, while someone else can live any way they want and get maximum pleasure out of it and never experience the horrors of this world, who are we to say that the way this guy lives is wrong? And this is the thing that it makes us come face to face with. I guess the final character we should talk about, along with Dr. We talked about Dr. Hughes, the other, another character we've already talked about, uh, Father, Father Panelou. But we mentioned briefly in our synopsis the character of Jean Terreau. Jean Terreau deserves some attention because he may actually be a sort of symbolic re representation of Camus himself. 
Taro is not actually a native of Oran, um, but he, he, he comes to the city later in his life. Taro had his first feelings of nihilism when he visited his father, who was a lawyer, and heard his father arguing for the death penalty of a criminal. And then as, as um, a young man saw the execution of that criminal, this coming face-to-face with death gave him his, his sort of first nihilistic and meaningless feelings. Thoreau also has this sense of confusion, at the very least, if not despair, cemented in him when he was later after this um, scene where he sees the execution of a criminal that his father had, had uh, actually prosecuted. He experiences more disillusionment when the revolutionary political party that he was involved in, he, they actually assassinate and, 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 and kill um, the, their former authorities. And Thoreau is just so scarred by these acts of human violence. And he feels like, you know, the, the biggest thing for him is he, wa- he walks away from this experience going, all I know is that humans should not endure such violence and injustice in the world. To him, the, the supreme value, the thing that orients uh, Thoreau isn't not necessarily this big, you know, philosophical structure. It's sort of this intuitive sense that the loss of human life is a tragedy. And, and this is what motivates him to act for what we would say is the good in the story, along with Dr. Ryu. He fights along with Dr. Ryu against the absurd, again, not out of some impulse that there's some larger value system, that there is some larger ethical guide, but simply because at an instinctive level, he sees human suffering as something to avoid. For both Dr. Yu and Jean Thoreau, these are, these are characters Camus points to in an attempt to, to, to have saints in this world without God. Through this narrative and even our own experiences in the world right now, we come face to face with questions. Questions like, does life have any discernible, coherent meaning? Questions like, if we live in a cold, closed, mindless universe of chaotic cause and effect, the universe that exists in the wake of God's death and Can we ever say that this is how someone ought to live or how they shouldn't live in the world? Camus, like Sisyphus, is trying to rebel against what he and millions of others have come to believe is the objective facts of the universe. Are the objective facts of the universe, the facts that we are told are the scientific facts of the world, right? That we're alone in a pointless universe. If God is dead, then are there sinners and saints? Are there better and worse ways to live in the world if one is to continue living at all? And Camus, with all of his might, is trying to say yes, that there are. 
Even if he doesn't have the value system and structure to support that, that's what he's grasping for in a universe where God is dead. It's in the form of story, not in just systematic rational argument, that Camus argues there are better and worse ways to live in the world. I mean, as you read this story, you feel it on an intuitive level. It's intuitively clear to you, even if even if you can't, you come in and you're reading the plague and you're coming in with the same sort of shared propositions of, of, of materialist, of a naturalist, maybe you come in with a bit of nihilistic impulse and you, you read this story. It's written so well that you, you feel it on a gut intuitive level as you, as you see the lives of people and read about the lives of these fictitious characters like Dr. Ryu and Jean Thoreau and even Othan. You, you feel this on the intuitive level that there are more heroic deeds than others, that these men are heroes in the story. And they're, they're more heroic than, say, Cotard or the old Spaniard that lives as a nihilist just counting the peas in his bed. But as you do that, you, you as the reader, you're, you're forced to wonder, well, why is that? Why are Dr. Ryu, Jean Thoreau, why are they more heroic than Cotard or the old Spaniard? And then it comes, makes you come face to face the question of like, well, what do I believe about reality? It gives me this moral value structure. Why are people sacrificing so much in our current coronavirus pandemic to save really if we look at the statistics, it's primarily what we might say are the least of these in our world. Those who are already most vulnerable to viruses and diseases. This is primarily affecting the elderly, those that might already have respiratory def deficiencies and illnesses. Why are people sacrificing so much to save primarily the least of these in our world? And why do we look at them as heroes? We have to have an underlying moral structure that would support why these actions that they're doing, the real Dr. Reuse of the world are out there who are working round the clock to care for the sick, to find cures, to prepare the necessary medical infrastructure to, to care for the sick, those who are sacrificing their own financial resources, not just to come up with direct solutions, but to, to stop this further spread of the plague, of our plague, of this pandemic, right? Why do we celebrate them? Why do we look at their actions as being heroic? We have to have an underlying moral value structure in order to say that is something that's worth emulating. That is how one ought to live in this world versus those that would potentially use this to exploit the weak, to steal, to take away from the most vulnerable. Why? When we step back, you know, the objective facts of the, the secular frame right now would seem to point to <laughs> this is Doing such a thing would be pointless. I think even the Nazis uh, understood this and took this, the sort of Nietzschean ubermensch, the, the, what we need to really do is have the strong survive for the benefit of our species, 
they took that to the logical extremes, right? They, they took that to the logical extremes by trying uh, experimentations that would eliminate the mentally and physically disabled. They, they, they tried their experiments in producing the Lebenspahn, right? The, what would be the future genetically pure races and, and, and breeding experiments and all of these things that we right now in, you know, post-World War II, maybe it's because they lost the war and we're not living in some sort of man in the high castle scenario. We look at that and we go, no, those are morally depraved behaviors. Those are things that we point to and say in our moral value structure, those are ways you should not act in the world. But why is that? Why do we condemn behaviors like that? Why do we condemn a pharmaceutical company if they were somehow able to manufacture an, an antidote, uh, a vaccine for the coronavirus? And if they were to do so, but yet raise their prices to a level that most people could not afford, why would we look at that and go, that is not the right way to respond to this. This is not how someone should live in the world. And yet, we are able to point to the real Dr. Reuse of the world out there and go, this is the model of behavior that we should emulate in the world. Why is that? It's because I believe that those people, the people like the Dr. Reuse of the story, the Jean Terros of this story, and the ones that we're seeing in the world right now, I believe we celebrate them because these are people that are participating in Christ's suffering. And at a deep intuitive level, though it is mired by the fall and it's mired by the presence of sin in the world, we, at a deep innate level, recognize this is the, this is the, the Christ-like behavior, Christ-like suffering in the world, that the bearing of one's cross to absorb and carry the sins of the world is the way we ought to live. This is the pattern. It's the prototype for how humanity is supposed to live in the world. This is, this is part of our fundamental calling that we've lost. We see Dr. Ryu-like characters in the world right now, and we see that they are, they are bearing the sins and sicknesses of others and doing so in a way that, that, that is bearing witness to to the truth, bearing witness to the truth, not merely through some, you know, calculated doctrinal affirmation of propositions, but in the existential participation of bearing the cross. You see, I, I don't think the plague is a godless tale at all. And here's why. We resonate with characters like Dr. Yu, Jean Thoreau. We resonate with Alphonse's sacrifice to to go back into the quarantine camps, even when he himself had gotten the all-clear sign, we resonate and feel an attraction to those acts of selfless service. Even though in the story, Dr. Ryu doesn't give propositional assent to particular beliefs about God that you or I, as perhaps Christians, may say is true, we resonate with them because all goodness, all truth, all beauty emanates from a singular source. There is no participation in moral goodness of any level or any kind without a response, at least in some small part, to the light of Christ. 
Dr. Ryu is participating in this story in Christ's sufferings, even though he probably doesn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God, doesn't even believe in any sort of God of the Christian story. He is acting in a way that demonstrates that the light of Christ, in whatever small part he was able to comprehend it and see that he should act in a way that's in keeping with the good, demonstrates that he is actually responding to Christ in some way. The plague isn't a godless tale. Yeah, yeah, this this doesn't solve the metaphysical questions about why natural evils like plagues and pandemic viruses like this exist at all. I you know, we've been trying to dedicate a good deal of time over the last few months to wrestling with questions about the problem of evil and suffering and these are difficult difficult questions. I I don't want to try to just put some sort of a cliched band-aid over it and go, nope, there's nothing to see here. Everything's just fine. No, these are difficult questions, but they're difficult questions regardless. And that's the point of the story. What good does killing off God, you know, does killing off belief in God do for any character in this story? They're still stuck in this situation, right? If anything, our characters wrestle with how they're like Dr. Ryu's lack of belief in God, how, how he can find some sort of rational, coherent explanation for why he should continue to, to fight against the virus, to fight against the pandemic that is taking place in Oran. And yet, there is something Christ-like, there is something Christian about Ryu's belief that we are to, quote, fight against creation as we find it, end quote. There's Christ rebuking the storm, healing the sick, raising the dead. We see all of these in the ministry of Jesus. All of these for the Christian must be interpreted on on some level as a, a rebuke against the current state of affairs and creation. And yet, of course, there's this danger we don't slide all the way into total Gnosticism, right? And we've done episodes on Gnosticism in the past. I won't explain all of that. But we don't slide into total Gnosticism because we affirm that things like that God became a human, that God is not only transcendent, that he is imminent, and that even that Jesus is still human even in his resurrection and ascension. God is both then transcendent, which gives us hope that the universe isn't a closed system of random causes and effects, that we are not just in Oran with the gates of the city shut off, that there is transcendent help in time of need. And yet, we also have this historic affirmation that God is somehow imminent. It is here with us, somehow, even in the worst of our suffering. And, and in the worst of our suffering, he's also calling humanity to carry the suffering of others, to bring healing and to transform death into resurrection. Well, I want to thank you for listening to today's episode of Deep Talks. I've been doing a bit of reflection on the work that I've been doing over the last couple of years, and I posted an update last week on my Patreon page about that. But for those of you that responded with 
so many encouraging comments um, and just just wonderful stories of how some of the things that we've covered in this podcast have been of help to you. It's, it's been really encouraging. Simultaneously, the coronavirus stuff has really affected our lives as a family and uh, in my work at the church that I'm on staff on. And it's it's limiting our ability to meet together as a church community, to meet face-to-face with people. So while my original plan was to kind of stay offline, do some discernment all the way through Easter, um, really feeling, you know, as a talk with other pastors, not just in our church, but outside of our own church community, that it's really necessary during this time to find alternative ways to stay connected with people. And this podcast and uh, social media is not the best way of having connection with people and having meaningful discussion about these things. In fact, face-to-face and in-person connection is always better. It's always better. But I believe in the value of mediums like this to provide at least some some semblance of, of connection and provide people with things in these times of being in quarantine. This is so weird to say. Some Someday we're going to look back on this and go, what a strange time. But in these times of being quarantined and, and having to be distanced from other people socially, I, I'm hopping back on. I, I don't know what the future will hold yet. We're still kind of evaluating how much of this can I do? Can we really do weekly episodes or multiple, you know, multiple times a month episodes? I'm not sure about that yet. But what I do know is that at least in the weeks to come, as I am not meeting with people as much in person, I do want to provide opportunities and, and to continue encouraging people and to keep helping people in these challenging times that where more difficult questions emerge, perhaps even questions that we shelf and come off the shelf in the face of suffering and anxiety and and, and strange days, uh, to help people process through their questions, to reflect on their own theology and their own philosophical assumptions, to help them explore their own questions of meaning and existence. So um, while I don't know if we're going weekly or not, I, I still have plans during this time where we, as in my current role, will be limiting some of our face-to-face interactions to try to have more online interaction available that would hopefully be of help to those of you that are listening. I can't do this. I can't do this podcast without the support of generous people in our Deep Talks Patreon community. I want to thank people like Jim, who is a a new contributor uh, to this podcast on Patreon. I want to thank people like Jason, Luke H., Tim K., Paul R., people like you who are going above and beyond the call of duty and and, and giving it a a pretty pretty high clip there to support this this podcast. I'm so thankful for you, but I also want to make mention of all the other supporters right now because I've received so many encouraging messages from you guys after last week's uh, update. I want to thank Rob S., Nathan H., Hannah P., Ann B., Michael H., Josh A., Sam P., Keith, Josh H., Joel T., Dave, Glenn, Micah, Dan, Kevin, Grant S., Isaac, Michael, Caleb, Stephen, Steve, and my first supporter there on the list, my wife, Carrie. So thank you guys for your support. 
you have questions or maybe even you want to share with me an insight that you had as you listen to this podcast or previous episodes or even objections. We wel- I welcome objections and charitable dialogue with people that that see things differently than I do. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. I'll leave a link for that in the description to this podcast. You can also, as you become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, if that's something you want to do and support this podcast, you can also message me there. I, I always respond to all the messages I receive in that platform. So that's another way we can have dialogue together about some of these uh, important ideas and not just the ideas, but as we talked about today, the calling these ideas bear on us to live in the world a particular way. So this is, this is, I love doing this stuff. I love having conversations. So don't be a stranger. Please feel free to reach out to me. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.